Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is Jotwolf. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. And welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order and occasionally interviewing franchise alum for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. He's done it all, folks. Coach, pastor, patrolman, officer, detective, sheriff, agent, doctor, ensign, lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, commander, senator, president, Sith Lord. Oh, yeah, and he was on... uh, the best two-parter Voyager telefilm and arguably the best episode of Next Gen. Wearing suits like he invented suits. It's Spencer Garrett! Yay! Spencer Garrett! Yay! <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm fantastic. It's good to see you. Happy holidays, man. Same to you. Same to you. Thank you so much for carving out of your time, uh, carving some time out of your very, very busy schedule for this. Absolutely my pleasure. I'm happy to be here with you. Well, uh, let's jump right in. I uh, I wanted to ask you, here we are a few days before Christmas. Yeah. Uh, you're a big movie guy. Um, this is a sort of a two-part question. Um, what is your favorite holiday movie and why is it The Muppets Christmas Carol? <laughs> I love The Muppets Christmas Carol uh, for a lot of reasons. I, lo- I love The Muppets. I love that The Muppets go back to like the 1950s. Um, I just went down a rabbit hole the other night, a YouTube rabbit hole, looking at uh, Jim Henson's, uh, Jim Henson's uh, commercials that he did in the yes. late 50s and early 60s. And I also went back to revisit, uh, rewatch SNL from its very first episode. And I had yeah. completely forgotten that the Muppets had their own segment on the early days of SNL. They sure did. Um, so yeah, I love I love the Muppets, and uh, my one of my neighbors in my apartment in New York City was one of the writers for Jim Henson, and worked on Sesame Street for many many years. Oh wow! So I got to visit the set when I was a little kid, and that was really a thrill. Oh my god! Um, I gotta say, I know it sounds a little trite, but uh, It's a Wonderful Life still gets me in the sweet spot every nice. year. I never miss it. Um, I just I just love that film, and I find something new in it every year. I never fail to cry at the end, maybe a couple of times in between. It's one of, it's probably Jimmy Stewart's greatest performance, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Huge Jimmy Stewart fan, but I just, I love Frank Capra films. And I think we kind of need them now more than ever. Uh, They're very feel good Americana. Uh, But what's, It's a Wonderful Life is really just an extraordinary, timeless film. And it's uh, a very hopeful film. And uh, I love it. That's my, that's my favorite Christmas movie. Probably a, a close second would be Die Hard. Yeah, you know, the folks that want to argue against Die Hard as a Christmas movie clearly aren't looking at the plight of, of John McClane. Of like, I think hey, so. I think he's so. literally like, traveled uh, to make amends with his family. That's absolutely true. I saw a clip, though, I think yesterday with Bruce Willis saying it's not a Christmas movie. It's a Bruce Willis movie. Oh, uh, come on, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, Bruce. 
Yeah, he's a, he's a tough cookie, but uh, it's it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, absolutely, but, absolutely. But it's a Wonderful Life is uh, is definitely that's definitely up there. And Christmas Story, I also love. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it, yeah. one of the one of the stations always has that twenty four hour. Yeah, of Christmas Story, I always love that. I I'm a big um, uh, Christmas Carol, so I love all the different oh, versions. Oh, and- uh, the original? You mean the the Alistair Sim original from the '30s? Well, I really enjoyed. I I've, I've, I basically started at the newer ones and have been working my way back. I've I've gotten as far as George C. Scott. Oh and, wow! Oh, um, who was before George C. Scott? I forget, but I I love every version of it. Are it's, you a fan of the musical of Scrooge with Albert Finney? I don't know that I've ever seen the musical. Oh come on, Tom! No, is it? Uh, Please tell me it's available out there somewhere. <laughs> oh yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be. It's uh, with Albert Albert Finney. You said Albert Finney. I mean, okay. Albert Finney uh, from from Tom Jones and Under the Volcano and nice. uh, the great great English actor Albert Finney. Uh, it's a musical of Scrooge, and uh, it's 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 fantastic. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's so awesome. I I I love that. And again, I imagine for a lot of the same reasons that you love um, it's a wonderful life, you know, story of redemption of like, yeah. Hey, we can change, you know, you can do things and make the world, you know, be the, be the change that you want to see in the world. That's, you know, uh, it's full. That's almost in every Christmas movie. Well, eventually you will make your way back. If you're going backwards in time, I think the very first, the original version of a Christmas Carol stars Alistair Sim uh, as, as, uh, as Scrooge. Um, and uh, it's an extraordinary cast. It made in the 1930s. I think it's one of the uh, the Ealing films from the British uh, the British studio uh, the Ealing, and it's a it's a great great film. You know, so that'll be that'll take you all the way back. Uh, there there have been many many different versions. Obviously, the Bill Murray Scrooge, which is kind of a big crazy flawed comedy. Right. I, I, lo- right. I love that too. But I I do love the original, and um, I remember seeing the musical of Scrooge when I was a little kid. And uh, and just and just loving that. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, Patrick Stewart. You know, coming back to Star Trek. Yes, Patrick Stewart's got a version out there, and of course, he, he does. Did it, he did it he on does. stage for years and years and years. Um, but let's let's get right into it. You uh, so born and raised in L.A., um, yeah. but you went to school at Duke University, Duke, which is like, well, when I'm, it's uh, only an hour or so up the road from my home in South Carolina. Why? Mm-hmm. Why Duke? What took you from LA to Duke University? I went to a, I went to a tiny little performing arts high school in Maine, in Bath, Maine, called Hyde School. 150 students, very very performing arts oriented. Nice. Uh, small school, 150 kids, graduating class of I think 45. As far afield and as far away from LA as you could possibly get, and that's exactly what I wanted when I was. 14, 15 years old. I wanted to get out of LA. I grew up in with a kind of a show business family. My mom yeah. was an, sort of an itinerant character actress. She was for many years, president of the Screen Actors Guild, first woman president of Screen Actors Guild. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time on the road with her backstages in theaters growing up as a kid. And I, I really wanted to get, I wanted to get out of LA. I wanted to get as far away from show business as I could as far away from Hollywood as I could. My dad was a, a talent agent. And I had an opportunity to go to this weird little school in Bath, Maine that was a school for character growth uh, and very, very personalized attention, maybe seven, 10 kids per class. Uh, really, really wonderful school. And it had a huge performing arts curriculum. Mm. And um, I didn't really know that I would 
eventually grow up to become an actor. But I still had that Jones. I still had that feeling in my bones that I, I mean, I grew up with grandparents who were actors. I grew up with a mom who was an actor. My aunt was an actor. So I, when I got to Hyde, I, of course, I jumped headfirst into the performing arts program there. And, um, and I love that we had the free, well, there was a show that we did called America's Spirit that mm. we toured the Eastern seaboard. We played the Kennedy center. We played circle in the square on Broadway. Mm. And, uh, and that's really kind of where I got my feet wet in, in doing theater and musical theater. And my best friend and roommate uh, at Hyde was going to Duke. I didn't really know much about it, but I figured, oh, if he gets in, I'll apply and I'll, I'll go, I'll go with him too. And, uh, and we'll, we'll be the theater guys when we get down there. That's and awesome. what I loved about Duke was, I think at the time in 1981, it was very, it was kind of seven, 8,000 kids and it was a smaller school and it had it had this, a similar vibe to Hyde in that the classes were small. It was very individual individualized attention, and they had a great theater department. They had a great musical theater department. And so when I got to Duke, I kind of jumped in and started doing the musicals and the plays. And I, that was really the only reason why I went there, other than the fact that I loved the way the Duke Gardens looked on the brochure. Um, it's, it's beautiful campus. It's a beautiful campus. <laughs> it looked like what your ideal of what. A college looks like with the yes. brick, with the, the gothic buildings and oh, the yeah. beautiful Duke Gardens. And I was lucky enough to get in and I got down there and I was an absolute fish out of water because I had gone from a, a tiny little school in Maine where we didn't have grades. Um, it was very, it was very kind of very artsy, fartsy, touchy feely, crunchy granola, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. And to go from a school like that to a school like Duke, where you had to go to classes and you had to pass your classes and uh, and they did have grades. It was much more regimented. And um, so I was kind I was I got down to Duke and I was all of a sudden, oh, this is what this is really what it's like. Yeah. And um, so that but that was that was the reason I went down there originally to go down because my best buddy was going to school there and they had a great theater department. And I wanted to see if I was any good at uh at acting yeah. um so i jumped into the theater department yeah that's awesome and, and so uh while you were there i mean duke you know anybody can pull up you know some of the more notable uh duke graduates jared harris ken jong uh Keith jared Lucas. harris is one, one of my dearest friends i did i did a production of equus with jared nice. and i remember his father came to duke to watch the production and i was so intimidated because uh yeah. i grew up you know, having grown up in the business, I knew who Richard Harris was. Great, great film star, English film star in the 60s and 70s. And so I remember doing, when he came that night, I remember very much wanting to impress him. Wow. Uh, and uh, he couldn't he couldn't have been sweeter. I mean, it was really, it was really extraordinary to have Richard Harris in the audience. Watching his son, watching me, I played a horse. I mean, I didn't, ha I didn't have one of the lead roles. I played one of the horses that gets blinded by the, by Alan Strang, by the kid. Um, wow. But Jared played the uh, Jared played the father of the boy and um, wonderful, wonderful actor even back then. And I saw I noticed in the notes that you sent me that my friend Retta was. Yeah. A Duke. Yeah. I did not even, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, you know, for folks who are not, uh, you know, I mean, this is it's kind of a deep cut, but like producer, uh, you know, co supervising producer, tell you know, teleplays uh, writer did stories 
for Deep Space Nine. Uh, Next Gen uh, had a hand in the Star Trek experience. Actually, wait, Retta? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Retta, the the comedian? (laughs) Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Are you kidding me? No. I mean, unless the internet's lying to me, (laughs) which mm, I mean, (laughs) Renee Echevarria. Yeah. my classmate from Duke, I knew, I mean, he was very involved in the Star Trek world, but we're talking about Retta from Good Girls and- Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Oh my I, gosh, I'm like, so sorry. Yeah, I'm so no, sorry. No. Renee, yeah, Renee, Renee was the- is Renee, the, from Star- Renee oh, Echevarria was a story editor. Let me Retta. take a second and wipe, wipe this egg off my face. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Retta, um, yes. So Renee Echevarria was a classmate of mine and Jared's Retta, Retta, uh, he yes. was on the show Good Girls and she was on Community and uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, com- comedian. She graduated in 92. Yeah. I didn't even realize she went to Duke. We were part of the same theater company for years here. Yeah. Uh, before she hit it big, but I didn't realize she went to Duke. I so, remember I remember right. seeing I remember seeing a, a short set of hers on on Comedy Central and just She's being brilliant. She's brilliant. So funny. And then I've when I've also forgotten that Ken Jong went went to Duke as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, when uh when Retta popped up in um, you know, there on NBC, I was just like, oh, it's her from the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I you're telling me I like it's like Retta was a story editor on Star Trek. I no, I'm so sorry. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and after right, you gave me that compliment of having my together. Jeez. There we go. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so then after, so after Duke, yeah. uh, you went to Fordham is, am I pronouncing that right? Correctly? I did. I went Fordham? to Fordham. I left, I left Duke actually after my junior year, I went to Washington DC. I got an internship working for national public radio, oh, wow. um, in the, just a random internship working in the national affairs department. So I went from like being this theater kid at Duke smoking clove cigarettes and running around in Birkenstocks and playing hacky sack and listening to the dead. And all of a sudden I'm living in DC, wearing a suit, carrying a briefcase, oh, that's uh, funny. reporting on, uh, reporting on telecommunications hearings on Capitol Hill. So I did that for three years. And while I was in DC, I started auditioning for theater in Washington at the arena stage at the Folger Shakespeare company, started doing local theater in DC. And that's kind of how I got, professionally started and that's kind of what was the sort of the catalyst and kind of what lit the fire under my ass to finally like okay I'm I'm doing this nine to five job on Capitol Hill working for a great organization NPR that I loved but I knew I wasn't going to do it for the rest of my life I knew deep down inside at some point I'm going to either be a local DC theater actor or I'm going to move to New York continue my studies and finish my degree and start studying with a wonderful acting teacher in earnest. And that's what I did. I left DC after about two and a half, three years, moved to New York. I finished my degree at Fordham, uh, graduating in 1987. Um, Denzel Washington was notably our keynote speaker at my graduation. He graduated, I think in 90, I want to say 90, I'm sorry, sorry, 87. I graduated 87. Denzel was the keynote speaker. I think Denzel graduated in, I want to say 82 or something like that. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but I started doing theater in, in, at Fordham, uh, started really taking, my, taking the classes seriously. And that's when I got into uh, Sanford Meisner's professional class at the Neighborhood Playhouse. And I studied with Sandy Meisner ultimately for about seven years. Wow. And that's, that's when I kind of threw, I threw my lot in. I, I announced to my, uh, to my parents, I said, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm joining the family business. 
I'm going to nice. be an actor. I remember there was just dead silence on the other end of the phone when I told my father, uh, <laughs> who was a, a talent agent for 60 years, a ten, an agent who was really not particularly fond of actors, uh, oddly enough. And so when I told him I was going to be an actor, there was just a long pause and he went, oh, OK, great. Um, and I and I remember my mom told my dad they were separated long before that. But my mom called my dad and said, Spencer just called me and said he wants to be an actor. And my father said, well, what did you expect? An astronaut with, you know, with these with these genes. So um, <laughs> yeah. that was it. So in about nine, so in about 1984, I'm at Fordham. I'm studying. I begin my studies uh, with Sanford Meisner and uh, at Lee Strasberg. And that's kind of when I went, all right, I'm I'm in this now. Let's see if we can have a go at it. For folks who may not, uh, I mean, the, the names have to ring a bell, I would think. But for folks who may not be familiar with Meisner and Strasburg, yeah. kind of just in a nutshell, Sanford Meisner, who are they? <laughs> Sanford Meisner was a legendary acting teacher, uh, along with um, if you if you know if you know who Marlon Brando is, you know that Marlon Brando studied uh, with Stella Adler. Uh, there were three very very profound teachers that ultimately came out of what was known as the group theater in the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, the group theater was, was founded by Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, Sanford Meisner, Alia Kazan, who directed on the waterfront and many, many great films, a streetcar named desire, great, great theater director. This was a group of actors, writers. It was a collective of theater professionals, uh, dramatists, directors, teachers, that all came out of this collective of the of the the group theater in the 1930s, and they all kind of peeled off and started their own methods of teaching, all of which were based in the Stanislavski method. Constantine yeah. uh, uh, Stanislavski uh, wrote the kind of seminal actor's book, An Actor Prepares, um, and they all at one point the whole group theater had gone to Russia and studied under Stanislavski at the Moscow Art Theater, came back to the states and kind of splintered off and created their own methods of teaching. Sandy's, uh, Sandy's was one. Lee Strasberg obviously uh, started the actor studio, which spawned Pacino, De Niro, you know, Dustin Hoffman, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Uh, and Stella had her own, uh, her own sort of uh, coterie of, uh, of devoted fans. Um, probably most notably, the most notable famous student of Stella's uh, would be Mark Ruffalo, who, uh, mm. you know, Stella, Stella passed away, I believe, in the in the 80s. But Mark is probably um, uh, the 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 most well-known exponent of Stella's teaching um, to this day, uh, besides Marlon Brando. And so anyway, I studied with Sandy Meisner uh, for seven years. Uh, my mom was in his class in the 1950s with uh, the likes of Steve McQueen, Joanne Woodward, um, Gregory Peck was there, yeah. uh, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton. Um, and, uh, you know, each, each of, each of these different teachers had their, had their devotees. They had their students that, that adhered to the teachings of these, of mm -hmm. these great teachers. So when I decided to become an actor, my mom said, well, you got to study with Sandy. And so I went and interviewed with, with Mr. Meisner and I ended up, uh, learning from him for about six, seven years. Wow. Yeah. His technique is, uh, I mean, cause you know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, different techniques and uh, there's a bunch of them out there. And a lot of people talk about the moment before, or, you know, yeah. 
certain breathing techniques or, you know, really, you know, devoting themselves into the character and they'll do the job for the few months before they actually go and play the part. So they really get into the head a little, just a little bit about Meisner's technique, the Meisner technique and how, have have you used it a lot? uh, His motto is acting is the ability to live truthfully under imaginary circumstances. That's it in a nutshell. Nice. Um, Acting is doing Acting is being, acting is reacting. Um, very, It's very simple when you break it down, when you think about it. It's really the ability to live truthfully under imaginary circumstances is the essence of what we do as, as, as actors. Um, Strasberg kind of took it to another level with the method. Um, it was a lot more intellectual, a lot deeper. Um, obviously, there was that whole sense memory thing i i chose to i and i studied uh i studied with a uh a a, uh a a sort of a disciple of of lee's a wonderful actor named fred sadoff who taught a strasberg class so you know as an actor when you're when you're 19 20 21 years old you you take what works for you and you put it into effect so i used a little bit of what i learned from from strasberg uh a lot of what i learned from sandy to me it's the most basic um, and we do what's called a repetition exercise in class where you, I would say, uh, Todd, your sweater is blue. And you'd say, my sweater is blue. And I'd say, your sweater is blue. And you go back and forth and you would do this repetitively. So you get the essence of, so you're, you're literally listening. You're literally in the other person's head. You're going back and back and forth and back and forth. So you're literally truly listening in the essence of the moment. Um, without sounding too dorky and actory, that's basically what it breaks down to is Sandy's Sandy's way of teaching is really about listening and reacting off of your partner in the scene. Yeah. Um, and that's what's always worked best for me. Um, the best actors, when you watch the, the best performances, you watch a Robert Duvall in anything. You can see Robert Duvall listening. Yeah. You watch. Dustin Hoffman in anything. Now, Dustin, Dustin studied out here at, at the Pasadena Playhouse with Gene Hackman. They were roommates out here. So I don't think Dustin was a studio guy. I'm not sure. I don't think he studied Lee Strasberg, but Dustin is one of the great listeners. Gene Hackman is one of the great. You, you can see them listening. They're fully invested in the scene, fully invested in their scene partner. And you can see them listening. And there's there's that's really what it's about. Yeah. Is, well, I um, mean, if you want if you want to really get those genuine moments, you have to be able to listen and and yeah. react off of what you're being given and yeah. to make that genuine. Oh, that's so great. Um, so you mentioned that you were in DC for a while uh, when you interned at NPR. Did you take any of those experiences? I'm jumping ahead of here a little bit, but did you take any of those experiences working on the Hill uh, to um, below the beltway when you were, uh, when you did oh, that? Yeah. Only in the sense that I, when I, <laughs> years later, when I, when I produced Below the Beltway, I mean, I knew all of those characters inside mm-hmm. and out. About five years ago, there was this young intern, very pretty, very, very attractive. She was wearing a, one of these summer dresses, flimsy, sort of low-cut baby doll dresses, I think they're called. And Aren't you Paul Gibson? Unfortunately. I can't believe you're still in this town. An incident came to light last night that is going to blow the roof off of this town. We were working. It was a work session, Scott. We were working, and she came in and... Oh, my, my boss, he screwed a high school intern once. 
Yeah. And I took notice of it, and she noticed that I noticed, and I offered her a brandy, and she accepted. That was stupid, I know. Good morning. Welcome to DC Sunday Shootout. Dredged up an unsubstantiated rumor, and uh, they coerced this lovely, innocent young woman. So there's absolutely no truth to anything they're about to say. Liar! I'm Paul Gibson. Four weeks ago, I couldn't get arrested in this town. Now, I'm about to take down a US senator. Get back in. All right, I'm gonna go to New York. I'm gonna get this girl online. I know who it is. Well, speak. Who sent it? Goddamn lobbyist. Name's Paul Gibson. You know him? Gibson, he's nothing. Because it's true. Because it happened. Because it's despicable. And because he can get you into law school. This job would be so much fun if it wasn't for the damn lobbyists. We do this right. We're on top of the world. We were talking about ruining people's lives. One life, two, top. Um, and also, at that point, by the time we, we shot Beltway, I believe in 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. I think it was back then. Um, I don't know. Do you have the dates on Below I think, the Beltway? I think it, I saw a release date of 2010. So Maybe you're 2010. shooting yeah. probably. It, yeah. wasn't that, it wasn't that long ago, 2010. So at that point, I had played 20 or 30 congressmen. I'd played real life congressmen. I'd played Tom DeLay yeah. in Casino Jack. Um, I knew these guys inside and out. I knew these characters that worked on the Hill. I knew the, the suit wearers and the hairdos and all, you know, all these kind of politico types. So doing Below the Beltway was something that came very natural to me. And, and uh, it, was, it made it a lot more fun to do because I, I lived in that realm and in that world for so long. Nice. How was it uh, acting in something that you were also producing? I imagine the energy was probably a little bit different. Uh, you know, was it different for you in your own head or did you just approach it day at a time or, you know, how was that? It was you? the first, it was the first feature that I'd produced. And so it was really a lot of fun to wear two hats. I'd be, I'd be doing a scene and then I'd, the director, Dave Francis, who's a dear friend, he would call cut. I'd take my actor hat off and then I'd jump behind the camera in video village and i watched the other actors do their scene so i had to i i it was a very low budget production i think we made we made below the beltway think for i think about two hundred fifty thousand dollars. we shot it in 16 days guerrilla style in washington dc um so it was really kind of run and gun filming and it was uh it was a, a great lesson to uh, to to jump into something that frenetic and that crazy to learn to learn uh, you got so many moving parts yeah you got to get you got to get your you got to make your day you got to get your scenes in the can by a certain amount of time we shot in locations that we weren't supposed to be in um, i was about i was about to ask <laughs> the office the office that we shot in and in my character senator Grider, we shot in an office on a sunday afternoon we had somehow had access to the mayor of dc's office um <laughs> wow. got it on a sunday when the building was shut down we shot it, I believe, in August, so it was probably about 90 degrees outside. So we were in this office building that had no air conditioning. So we're all, all the actors are running around with these little handheld fans, blowing ourselves with fans, because we're <laughs> shooting in a stiflingly hot room. And yeah. so we had to make our day and get in and out of that location in a short amount of time. So you learn, you learn a lot in a short amount of time how to, how to make your days and how to, uh, 
how to get scenes done quickly. Everybody, it was a real team effort. It was a family effort. All of the actors, I put the cast together. Um, most of them were dear friends of mine, Tate Donovan, Xander Berkeley, Sarah Clark. Uh, They're all people that I just called up and said, hey, I got this great script. You want to come and work for absolutely no money in Washington? <laughs> um, some people for two, three days. Some people were there for, for the whole shoot for the, for the two and a half, three weeks. Yeah. Um, the only, the only trade-off I said, I'm not going to pay you anything, but you get to stay in a really great hotel. So we put everybody up in a really lovely hotel. Um, and it was an ultra low budget contract, but people love the material. They love the script and they love the story and they love the fact that they got to work with each other. I wanted to hire Xander Berkeley, who was an old pal as that lobbyist character. Yeah. And Xander said, listen, I know you, he said, have you cast your female lead yet? And I said, actually, no. And he said, well, I'll do your movie if I can bring Sarah with me to Washington and you cast her as the lead. And I was like, that's genius. She's perfect. She's perfect for the character. Nice. Done. You're in. So oh. we got, we got a package deal. We got Sarah, we got Xander. Um, it was actually, I also believe I was Tate. It was Tate Donovan's idea as well. Tate, Tate had suggested, he said, you really should hire Sarah because then we're going to just, we'll put the whole band back together. And it was, it was a blast. That's awesome. You don't always have those experiences on films, but when you all know each other and like each other, all of a sudden, then when the director calls cut, then all the actors are kind of picking up the equipment and you're moving stuff around and it's a, yeah, you're doing it as a team effort. So yeah, all hands on deck for sure. Great, great memory. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I just, because I had seen that as I was going through and I was like, I want to watch that. And I did. And it's a fun movie. It's such a a, film. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. I can't imagine working guerrilla style, which for folks who don't know, when you see the exterior of a building, you have to get permits and safety things and da, 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 da. And you know, a lot, there's a lot of red tape to cut through. When you see Tate Donovan walking by the white house, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it's just a, a quick, a shot that we grabbed of him walking by the White House. What you don't see is there's security guards all over. The, this is post 9-11. Yeah. There's, there's security guards all over the fence of that White House. Everywhere. So we literally had the DP with a blanket over his head with the camera, hiding the camera, shooting Tate. Just he all he's doing is walking by the gates of yeah. the White House, looking in and saying, gosh, if only someday. Um, and I remember it at one point, and as a producer, I'm, I've got eyes in the back of my head, and I see these security guys, and I'm on the walkie-talkie with the director and with, the, with a couple of the PAs. I'm like, uh, here they come, guys. We shoot the shot, and let's get the F out of here. Because the security guys started walking towards us. You, you see this guy with a blanket over his head. That's, that doesn't look kosher. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. got the shot, and we moved on. We shot a lot of that kind of stuff. And ultimately, we got a, a movie for 250 grand that looks like looks like we made it for a million bucks. I, I was going to say, I, yeah. when you told me 250K, I was like, yeah. wow, <laughs> that is awesome. And it had a great life beyond. We won a bunch of film festivals. We won the Newport Festival. Uh, it's had a terrific life. It's still playing. I think right now it's up on, on Tubi. Yeah, uh, it's on Tubi. Tubi channel. It's on Crackle. So it's had a nice little life. And um and we're all still very close to this day. Everybody that's, that was involved in that film. So it's nice when you when you make a film and everybody is involved and it feels like a family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now you talked about uh, sort of preparing for different roles. I got to ask, you know, how did you prepare for Tommy Carroll in Public Enemies? Because that's a great, great question. Um, wow. That's a, 
Yeah, that's kind of the movie that changed my life. What is it exactly you do for a living? John Dillon, I love banks. That's a serious thing to say to a girl you just met. I like baseball, movies, good clothes, fast cars, and you. What else do you need to know? Today, I am declaring the United States of America's first war on crime. Your task will be to get John Dillinger. Are you up to that task, Agent Pervis? Absolutely, sir. We are pursuing hardened killers. Play a game, Mr. President. It's called spin the dial. That's your money, mister? Yes. We're here for the bank's money, not yours. Put it away. Oh, the whole country thinks you're a damn hero. We're robbing banks is getting tougher. We're having too good a time today. We ain't thinking about tomorrow. Yeah, well, you ought to. Put some clothes on, miss. They're extraditing you. Where to? Indiana. Why? I have absolutely nothing I want to do in Indiana. Jack, how long did it take you to go through a bank? About one minute, 40 seconds. Flat. Well, there's a man who killed pretty boys, will they? The only way that you would leave a jail cell is when we take you out to execute you. Well... We'll see about that. John Dillinger has given us a second chance to get John Dillinger. He could be anywhere. Where are you going? Anywhere I'm on. We're too good for him. They ain't tough enough, smart enough, or fast enough. I hit any bank I want anytime. They got to be at every bank all the time. I had been playing a lot of these kind of, as I like to call them, pricks and suits for a long, long time. Um, I mean, I was, I was, I was doing it uh, until the cows came home. I was very making a nice, comfortable living, playing the same guy a lot and getting a little bored of it. And I got a call to go in and read for this Michael Mann film. Michael Mann's one of my heroes. Uh, oh, yeah. Definitely one of my cinema heroes. And I went in to, and I had gotten the script and the sides for this Tommy Carroll character, who was a, a thug, an ex-boxer, uh, you know, a, a getaway car driver, criminal, something so far afield than every, anything I'd ever played before. Yeah. And I was nervous about, I was nervous about the audition and I went to the casting director, Bonnie Timmerman, who cast all of Michael Mann's films. She cast Miami Vice, legendary mm. casting director. And I went to her and I said, you know, I, I love that you're giving me the opportunity to read for this character. I said, can you give me something a little easier? I said, is there a, is there an FBI agent? Is there a lawyer? Is there something else? And she literally turned to me and she said, Spencer, I've been following your career for 25 years. I've watched you play variations on the same theme for the longest time i brought you in for a reason because i saw something more in you and i think that there's a more of an actor inside you and i want to see what you can do with this character so she said why don't you take the material give it another day come back tomorrow and um and i, I i'd already done a fair amount of research on him and I, he's a real life guy these were yeah. all these were real these are real people 
So I'd had a fairly good idea. I knew what he looked like. So I, I, I'd really come in very, really prepared. And it was a really special audition because Michael, when you, when you read for Michael, he has a cameraman in the room with you while you're auditioning and he's following you around mm-hmm. with a steady cam. It's not just, you're not just reading with a casting director. There's literally a guy with a camera that's following you. And when I was done with the scene and I really felt like I, I delivered and Bonnie said, I'm really glad you took the time. She said, Michael, Michael has been watching you from Chicago remotely live while you're doing this. Scene. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, and when we were done, she said, um, we'll, we'll let you know. And right that moment, the door opens and Michael Mann wasn't in Chicago. He was on the other side of the wall. He'd been watching me from a live feed from this cameraman's camera. And Michael Mann burst in the room. He said, I love it. I'll see you in Chicago. Oh, wow. (laughs) And that was, and that movie kind of changed my life. Man. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, you know, uh, for folks who don't remember, Johnny Depp, Christian Bale, gangsters in Chicago. Like it's, it's a, it's an amazing film. I recall seeing it in the theater. It's a great film. It's actually, it's, it's aged better over the years, I think too. It's, it's, uh, I don't know how well received it was when it first came out, but it's re- it's actually aged better over time. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tr- it's a terrific film. I watch it from time to time when it's on. I'm a big fan of the movie. I love everybody in it. I I and again, it was we had I think we had a month of rehearsal before we even shot uh, a second of film. Um, me, oh, Steve, awesome. Jason, Clark, Christian, Johnny, all of the bank robbers, Stephen Stephen Graham, uh, mm-hmm. who obviously has gone on to. He played Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire, extraordinary actors. So it was a great kind of boys club to be a part of. And we had a lot of, we had, we trained, we had weapons training. I had driving training, getaway car. We had to learn how to shoot, you know, uh, uh, the BR guns, the Tommy guns. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a real, it was a, it was a heck of a lot of fun and a real, I mean, Michael, Michael, his attention to detail is legendary. And yeah. so that was that was working at a higher level on a film that I'd ever been on before, besides Air Force One, which I'd done, you know, 10, 12 years earlier, which was my first big kind of movie movie. But being on something with with Michael, who every every actor, every character had a dossier on their real life characters wow. put together by the production office. So we had a wealth of information. We had all of this great, great detail about our characters already going in on top of the research that we'd already done ourselves. Yeah. So um, he's a director who loves actors and he let, he loves to let actors, uh, he, he trusts that they've come prepared. And then once we get up and running, he lets us, lets them, lets them rip. Yeah. If you're looking for, uh, for folks listening, if you're looking for a really interesting character study, sort of a, I've talked a lot on the show about uh, bottle episodes where it's just two characters in like one small space. If you, if you want to see how Michael Mann works with actors and characters um, collateral, Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx in a, in a taxi cab. And it's, it, you really get to see the interest because again, with limited, you know, how many angles can we get with this taxi cab? And then you talk about the dossiers. They, you know, um, everybody wanted to know like all these specific details about Cruz's character. We don't get them in the film, but he knows because of those dossiers. That's so interesting. So talking about, uh, you mentioned air force one. I, there is not a 4th of July that goes by in the Davis household where we don't, (laughs) where we don't watch most likely start the day with air force one. 
tonight I come to you with a pledge to change America's policy. Atrocity and terror are not political weapons, and to those who would use them, your day is over. In a speech tonight in Moscow, the president issued a direct challenge to terrorist nations around the world. But the question remains, what are the risks involved in such a bold policy initiative? They hated your speech, didn't they? We're afraid we won't have the guts to back it up. Air Force One, clear for takeoff. Thank you for your hospitality, Moscow. The president's plane, Air Force One, has been hijacked. What do they want? They want General Raddick released from prison. I will execute the hostage every half an hour. Where are airborne scenarios? There are no airborne scenarios. My husband will not negotiate. His wife, his daughter, I think he'll negotiate. How the hell did this happen? How the hell did they get Air Force One? Your national security advisor has been executed. He just bought you another half hour. Sir, your parachute. I'm not leaving without my family. You know who I am? I'm the President of the United States. Jim isn't making this decision as a president. He's making it as a husband and a father. Go! Let's not forget this president is a Medal of Honor winner. He knows how to fight. He has no right to take chances with his life. Given to their demands, you've got a job to do. It makes me so proud, Mr. President, that you stuck with us. You know your father, he has also killed. You're nothing like my father. We're tracking six MiGs. I'm sending in our F-15s to protect you. She said MiGs? In a war, people die. The president is up there with a gun to his head. I'll do anything to save my family. Don't ask me for something I can't give. It's a great American film. It's a great popcorn movie. Yeah. Even though the Cold War is long over, or is it? Right. Uh, but it still, it really holds up. It's a, it's a great, great action film. Great Harrison Ford performance. Um, what a very cool thing to be to be a part of. Yeah. Um, you were you were uh, elbow to elbow with Glenn Close. Yeah. And uh, and Dean Stockwell recently Dean Stockwell, recently departed. Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. Um, yeah, he just left us a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, yeah. That was incredible. I mean, I was I was 26, 27. I'd been around for a couple of years before that, but I remember getting that, and I remember thinking I've been invited to sit at the grown-ups table. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> those you know, are some like, heavy hitters. You know, when you're man. a little kid, and at Thanksgiving, and you sit at the card table with the little kids. Yes. So I'd kind of been at, I'd been at the I'd been at the the Hollywood card table uh the kids the kids table for a little while and then once you get a call from wolfgang peterson and he says i want you to come join my 200 million dollar movie um and i'm on this thing for six weeks and i'm sitting next to me like you said i'm sitting next to glenn close and dean stockwell uh i had i remember seeing glenn close in broadway in on broadway in in the musical barnum um fell madly in love with her then i was it was very hard for me to contain my crush I was trying to be very stoic and very serious yeah. on, on set with her every day. Um, but I was crushing hard uh, on her and she couldn't have been lovelier. That's and, awesome. uh, I run in, I run, every, every couple of years I run into her and, uh, and I, and I remind her that I'm, you know, that I'm still, 
I, I still, I still carry a torch. That's awesome. That's so great. I, I imagine because uh, for folks before we started rolling, uh, you mentioned there's been a discussion about Air Force oh, yeah. One Two. Air Force One Two. I don't know whether it's just baloney, but I ran into uh, Armin Bernstein, who was one of the executive producers of Air Force One, 1995. It's been a long time. I ran into him randomly on the street in Nantucket Island. Massachusetts over the summer where I go every summer for a couple of weeks, yeah. bumped into him on the street. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking about putting together air force one part two. Nice. So <laughs> I'll, be- I'll believe it when I see it, but now, I said, look, you- man, I said, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm available. Uh, I'd like to think that my character, Thomas Lee white house aide, yep. <laughs> uh, as he's either, he's either burned out on Washington and he's gone on to greater things, or he's still one of those Beltway, uh, Stockholm syndrome people who just can't get out of Washington. And now, at some point, he's you know he's gone from one government agency to another. Um, maybe he's run for co- who knows? But maybe I started, I started giving Armin lots of lots of potential backstory on where I thought Thomas Lee might have gone. I think so, there's a potential for uh, Glenn Close to come back as the president. Oh yeah. And have have sort of uh, that be and either you as VP or maybe chief of staff or <laughs> yes um, or yourself as I'd like uh, to the think president. That I'm, I'm no, I'd like to think that the character is no longer like a, a, a mid level staffer. He's right, he's, right. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think that he's kind of gone on to bigger and better things. But I love I, I love the idea of Glenn as as the president. Um, and uh, who would be who would be the villain? Who would be oh, who would be the great adversary? I mean, God, Gary Oldman was so brilliant. Oh, but yeah. don't it's, you want to hear Glenn Close say, get off my plane? Yes. Oh, oh my God. I, so do. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there's uh, oh gosh. Well, part of me thinks, uh, you know, seeing some of those, um, it makes me think of stuff like the expendables. And I'd love to see somebody really menacing, like like a Dolph Lundgren. To come in and just, you know, because he's also got the voice and the whole thing and just yeah. a very menacing look. I, I I, think that would be fun. That's yeah. off the top of my head. I'm sure you've probably got a Rolodex of potential villains. <laughs> maybe, um, Thomas, maybe Thomas Lee's gone rogue. Maybe, maybe. I was going to say, I like, you know. And her, and her aide from 95, maybe, maybe, he's have the ta- mole. maybe I've taken a dark turn. Thomas Lee is I, the mole. Yeah. He's the That's inside the man. Oh, yeah. The inside oh. man working for the Ruskies. I think we just—I think we just nailed it. You're going to get a writing credit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is my, uh, which is the whole reason. You know, that's all I really yes. wanted. <laughs> so, um, you know, with uh, you know, you talked uh, again with you have a very distinct voice. Very, uh, I could listen to you read anything, honestly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but you know, you worked in NPR, which I'm sure you got on the mic at least a little bit there. Actually, um, did not. I was no, never got on I mic? was. I was no, no. I was a. Uh, I was a paper pusher. I was a. I was a, a, a twelve dollar an hour in intern, which is probably a lot of bread back then in 1983, 1984. Oh, yeah. But twelve bucks an hour was decent dough for a kid back then. Um, but yeah, never. I never went near a mic. I spent a lot of time in the room uh, with Susan Stamberg and 
and, and, and Jim Edwards and all those people uh, had all things considered, but never got behind a mic. That was much later in my, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get into the voiceover stuff until much later on. Well, that's where I was going was just, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, also being cast in things, you know, breaking away from your standard fare with public enemies. What was yeah. it like to do the voiceover stuff for Star Wars, The Old Republic? That's a unique, uh, a unique thing on your resume. As I was scrolling through, I came to that and went, I had no what? idea. <laughs> I had no idea what a big thing that was going to be. It was literally a job that I auditioned for. Um, I'm a Star Wars fan, but I'm not a super duper fan. Sure, sure. Um, I didn't really, uh, I'm a fan of the first three. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily the next three, the Lucas three, the Jar Jar Binks that era, yeah, it kind of yeah. lo- it kind of lost me. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I auditioned for this character of Darth Revan, and I went in, and I and I got, and I ended up doing several more and doing the video game, and it was a great gig. But I had no idea. I can't tell you, Todd. At least maybe five times a week, I get in the mail. Somebody will send me a Pop Funko doll um, <laughs> of my character, or a drawing of my character, or a photograph. To, to sign and yeah. I mean it, it's I had no idea that this character was such a was such a popular character it for me honestly I hate to say it and I don't mean to sound uh, you know poo-pooing it but I was too it, it was a gig it was a gig yeah. I did 12 years ago and I forgot about it and I went on to the next the next one and now I've got people sending me stuff to sign and it's very flattering it's lovely it's the same as like President Raiko on uh, the Legend of Korra um which was a, was a terrific, uh, also a terrific gig. I had no idea what a big deal that show was when I did the job. And I'm, and I'm recording with wonderful voice artists and actors like da- uh, David Hyde Pierce and PJ Byrne and John Michael Higgins. And we would all just, we'd get the call. Oh, you're shooting it. You're recording another episode. And I'd show up and there'd be marvelous actors there. But I had no idea, again, what a big deal that, that really was. Just as when I got cast as Simon Tarsus in my first Star Trek episode. Yeah. All my life, I wanted to be in Starfleet. I went to the Academy's training program for enlisted personnel. I took training as a medical technician and I served at several outposts. The day that I was posted to the Enterprise was the happiest day of my life. Did you ever consider applying to the Academy, going the whole route, apply to become an officer? My parents wanted me to. And then I thought about it. I used to sit under this big tree near the parade grounds. An elm tree with a circular bench? Yes, that's the one. I spent many an hour there. It was my favorite spot to study. I used to sit under that tree and watch the drills. Picture myself an officer. I know that it would have made my mother very happy, but I... You didn't do it. I was 18. 
and eager. The last thing I wanted was to spend four years sitting in classrooms. I wanted to be out there, traveling the stars. I didn't want to wait for anything. And now it's done, isn't it? My career in Starfleet is finished. Not if you aren't guilty, Simon. Doesn't matter. I lied on my application. And that mistake will be with me for the rest of my life. Literally had no idea what a big deal Star Trek was. I just didn't. All I knew was my godfather was an actor named Liam Sullivan, and he was on a pretty iconic episode uh, called Plato's Stepchildren. Yeah. Um, and I forget his character's name, but he was the sort of the, he was the kind of the Zeus-like character that sort of ordered uh, Shatner around on the chessboard with Michael Dunn. Yeah. But I didn't, but I didn't really know what a big, what a big deal. Well, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into when I did Star Trek. It was a hugely popular show at the time. Next Gen was a big, big deal. When I got it, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and now it's become such a huge part of my life that I'm so grateful for. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm having dinner with LeVar tomorrow night. Um, I've been directed by Jonathan Frakes maybe five or six times since then. He's become one of my dearest friends. He seems like a no sweetheart. LeVar no does too. Did. You know, and I've gone to a couple of conventions uh, in Vegas. That's a lot of fun. Uh, the Star Trek fandom is really, really special. It you really know, is. Yeah, it's really very, cool. uh, very passionate, very passionate uh, about the, about the fandoms. The you know, yeah. I'm I would imagine there was a little. I gotta imagine like for a character like Darth Revan and and Simon Tarsus, you know, getting into the sci-fi realm. Did you notice anything about any of the direction that you were getting or did you approach it like everything else, you know, of like, this is a character, it just happens to have pointy ears or it happens to be able to manipulate the force, you know, it's what I didn't, I did not know. I mean, with, with Tarsus, I had no idea what a Romulan was. I didn't know a difference between a Romulan and a, and a Vulcan or uh, so I literally had to, and there was no internet back then. Right. So uh, this was 1980. 1990 was there internet back then if there was a very limited worldwide amount. Web. Yeah. so i couldn't go on google and 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 say hey google what is what does a romulan do how does a romulan act so i literally was making it up as i go i i, I went to jonathan frakes and i said uh and there was a there was a scene with patrick stewart in the 10 forward in the uh yeah. in his in his quarters where i broke down crying yeah it's not in the show Right. Because we ended up having to reshoot it. Um, I remember, I believe Rick Berman, the executive producer of the show, uh, he'd seen the dailies from the show and said, you know, Romulan would, would never cry. I was getting very emotional and it yeah. was very sort of borderline. You know, he wouldn't shed a tear. Um, so I we had to kind of go back and retweak that. Um, that was just that was just a learning curve. Yeah. And uh, and I was also, to be honest with you, I was very nervous. I mean, all the nerves that you see in Simon Tarsus when I'm in those scenes with Patrick Stewart. I grew up watching Patrick Stewart in uh, there was a wonderful PBS show called Acting Shakespeare with uh, with John Barton. And it was on PBS in the late 60s, early 70s, I believe. And it was members of the Royal Shakespeare Company mm. like Patrick Stewart, uh, like Helen Mirren. And they would act scenes of Shakespeare um, for students. It was a PBS television show. 
So he was iconic to me already. And all I just got a chill t- talking about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> and then sitting across from Sir Patrick Stewart as a young actor playing a character that I really, I hadn't had the opportunity to do a lot of research on. So I was really just kind of winging it. And it was being shaped by my conversations with Patrick, my conversations with, with Frakes, uh, my conversations with LeVar and Brent Spiner and Michael Dorn and the people that I was working on. I was, I was running around in the makeup trailer. I was like, what, what would a Romulan do in this situation? Yeah. And I was, and I was kind of getting, getting little bits of information and trying to form that character based on the information that I'd gotten from the other actors who were also who were all, already so dug into their roles right. and so wonderful. You know, Gates and 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 everybody on that show was just so terrific, yeah. and they were so terrific to me and so welcoming to me. And I was I was literally terrified. So when you see Simon kind of shaking and nervous on that scene on the witness stand in the yeah. courtroom, I mean, I was nervous. Yeah. I see that episode replay sometimes if I'm flipping around and I'll see it late at night. That's one of those things where you go back and you say, gosh, if I could go back in a time machine and 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 retweak that performance and recalibrate it, I would. There are not many. Would you? Performances. Oh, I think so. I, I mean, if I if I the actor that I am now, oh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> if I with, with the experience that I have now, I'd love to go back in time and give a better performance. Mm. I think it's a very it's 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 OK. It's a very raw performance. It's very, it's a very, it's, you see a very green actor up there. I would have, I would have given him much more, uh, I would have given him, him more layers and more nuance. And, but I mean, again, I was a, I was a 25 year old kid. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I, you know, in looking at it, it's, it, because it comes across, you know, we talked earlier about those genuine moments. Though, but, but talking about, you know, the character in, uh, in Flesh and Blood in Voyager, Weiss. Yeah. That was 10 years later. So at that point, I had had the opportunity. I think 10 years, I think then you had the internet and and I'd seen at that point, I'd seen every episode of TNG. Nice. And so I was a better prepared actor. And nice. uh, and I'm trying to remember who, I think Ken Biller directed one of those episodes. Kenny was a great friend and he directed one of those two episodes. And I had a lot, a lot of, a lot of guidance, but I also, I, I'd come in, I'd come into that situation as a much better prepared actor 10 years later, eight or 10 years later, whenever that was when we did Voyager. So you've definitely got, uh, you know, because I I know you feel that way about your performance in Drumhead, but it's, I think it's such an amazing, genuine performance of this. He's a kid. He's a kid. And he's scared. Pure. Yeah. I got to show you something. You'll get a kick out of this. Your your listeners, your listeners can't see it, but, um, this is something I'm very proud of. So I did something right, obviously. Yes. Oh, that's so great. Is that wild? <laughs> I got my own, I got my own Simon Tarsus action figure. That is so cool. Oh God. That's so, so awesome. <laughs> obviously, obviously, whatever I did, people seem to dig. So I'm that makes me happy. Well, here's fingers crossed that you uh make another appearance now that we've got. A whole bunch more Star Trek coming up that maybe you'll be an admiral or you know something else coming up. Uh, we got we've got Picard. We've got uh, yep. Yeah, believe me, I'm already I'm I've already put in the call. I've already put in the call to Frakes. I'm having <laughs> dinner with Lavar Burton tomorrow night, who's been directing a lot of Picard. Yeah, uh, I've been I've been throwing my hat in the ring to bring Tarsus back for sure. That's so, awesome. That's I'm so a sh- great. Shameless actors, believe me. 
<laughs> it's not unlike comedians. I've worked, I've been in the room with enough comedians that it's like, hey, you got some work? Is there a show? Yeah. Can I do what anything? We do. What we do. Yeah. Well, uh, just a couple more things. I, I you, we're getting close to the end of our of our hour here. I wanted to uh, I wanted to hit. At, I mentioned comedy here. You uh, worked with some comedy juggernauts on news radio. You did an episode yeah. of news radio, and I gotta yeah. say, how how crazy is Joe Rogan? <laughs> you know what? I didn't really. Uh, I don't think I had much to do with Joe. No. Most of my stuff. This was. Uh, unfortunately, this was after Phil Hartman had passed. Yeah. John yeah. Lovitz had, John Lovitz kind of reluctantly stepped into Phil's shoes. Right. Uh, and the set was, a, it was, a, there was a weird vibe on the set. I remember we were waiting for, this is, this is my biggest memory of news radio. I, 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 I don't even know if I actually even met Joe Rogan, maybe even at the, just at the table read, um, but the scene, I think the scene was with was with Mora mm-hmm. and Dave Foley and Lovitz. I think I played an FBI agent. Yeah, uh, it's so funny. Somebody reached out to me. There's a guy that does a podcast about news radio, and <laughs> he 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 got my information, found me, and said, "I want to do an hour with you about your experience on news radio." I'm like, "Dude, I've done 275 television shows. I have it's a it's a a blip in my yeah. memory." But yeah. what I do remember is that we were all sitting around the soundstage waiting for Andy Dick to show up. There was a, an enormous crash. He was late. There was a crash. We all ran outside the soundstage and he had crashed his Porsche into the side of the soundstage, like crumpled oh, his Porsche into the side of the soundstage. That's nice. my memory of, of, of news radio and oh, having a, a lovely time and getting to work with. I love Maura. Uh, Lovitz and I have been have been friends ever since then. And. It was a it was a great time, but um, yeah, I mean, I did unfortunately I didn't get to work with Phil, um, but I did get to work with John. I got to work with Dave Dave Foley. I was a big Kids in the Hall fan. Oh so, yeah, well, see, yeah. I'm I'm the youngest of three boys. My next oldest brother is 13 years older than me. Oh wow! So by the time he was in the demographic for David Letterman, Saturday Night Live, Kids in the yeah. Hall, his four year old little brother was sitting next to him. So I absorbed all of that as a kid, yeah. which influenced my comedy moving forward. But, but you mentioned, uh, you mentioned you're having dinner with LeVar and you put in calls to Frakes. Uh, well, LeVar, LeVar is, uh, he's one of the cads. He's one of the cads. So we're yes. all, so we're all uh, the cads are getting together tomorrow night. My, my big question about the cads is um, yes. how safe do you feel when, when Alfred Molina gives you a hug? Because I imagine the answer is very, is that very, right? he is genuinely <laughs> I, I can say without reservation Alfred Molina who is to me a, a, a huge movie star he is fully and completely without any pretense the loveliest nicest man actor I I know I just That's adore great. him he doesn't have an ounce of guile or an ounce of menace in him uh he's an incredible artist I studied with him in his uh, Shakespeare intensive Uh, We got to do. uh, We did a production of The Lion in Winter together many years ago. He's one of my acting heroes, and the fact that I get to call him a friend is—I still pinch myself. So he's part. Fred and I actually started. Alfred and I started this thing called the Cads, the Character Actors Dining Society. Yes, where we we um, uh, we meet once a month at a at a kind of an old school LA joint, a restaurant. Here in town, there's a place called Musso and Frank's here in Hollywood. It's the oldest restaurant in L.A. Another place called Dan Tana's, real old school Hollywood restaurant. 
So it's me. Eventually, this it's sort of mushroomed into a group of about 12 of us. But uh, I, I, off the top of my head, LeVar, Kevin Pollock, Jason Alexander, Richard Kind, Titus Welliver, uh, Emilio Estevez, Stephen Weber, Eric McCormick, Michael McKeon, Paul McCrane, um, and the honorary uh, chick in our group is Diane Keaton, my crush, who... Um, Another crush. <laughs> we were all having dinner one night and Diane Keaton was walking by our table and she did a double take and she said, can I take my picture with you guys? Oh, and, and Fishburne and Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Lawrence Lawrence is one of the original. He's one of the OG cads. Man, that's um, awesome. But uh, it's a it's a really terrific group of guys. And I just I just sit back and marvel and listen to Michael McKeon is just a fountain of show business history um, and music history. He's just one of the smartest, most knowledgeable, loveliest men I know. I didn't know him before. He was brought into the group by Kevin Pollack, who, who I also didn't know. A couple of these guys were brought on by Jason Alexander. Um, nice. who I have known for a long time. So it's a yeah. great group of guys. And we just, we sit around for two hours and we drink wine and eat steak and shoot the <laughs> and tell, tell stories and tell lies and bust, so each, bust each other's chops and, and a very, it's a great, and it's also a great uh, support group. Um, yeah. We were all supposed to have dinner tomorrow night um, at a restaurant, at our, one of our favorite restaurants. And we, because of COVID, we pulled the plug on that. So Paul yeah. McCrane, who you might know from ER and fame. Oh, yeah. Uh, million things. Paul is a new member. So he's cooking gumbo for all of us. And we're going to sit out in his backyard, spread out with our masks on um, so we can still have that experience uh, of being together. But it's a, it's a really, it's a really lovely group of guys. And we, and even when the pandemic hit, we were doing it uh, over zoom. We were in yeah, each other's awesome. homes and, uh, and we were having dinner in front of our computers <laughs> with each other as CADs, as character actors, dining society, but it's a great group. So, so, so LeVar, uh, LeVar is joining us tomorrow night. We haven't seen him for a while. Alfred Molina uh, is, has been in, uh, Montreal on a project for a while so he's he's coming back so we're gonna have about 12 of us tomorrow night which will be nice. great that's awesome yeah. well you mentioned uh these lovely ladies in your life Glenn Close and uh and Diane there with the cads um another lovely lady who's popped into your life on a couple of occasions is Taylor Swift <laughs> yeah how 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 has this happened and what what you know, what <laughs> won't leave me alone she just she just won't she, she's got to stop following me. It's driving me crazy. I got to change my number. I've changed the locks, uh, my email address. No, I met Taylor Swift probably six years ago at a New Year's Eve party after, uh, after the ball had dropped. She had done the ball drop thing with Ryan Seacrest on New mm. Year's Eve. And there was an after party. I was with my girlfriend at the time and we were together in, in this restaurant and Seacrest, who I've known for a long time, came up and he said, you want to meet Taylor? And I said, yeah, sure. And Dana, my girlfriend, we went over and we and she's like vibrating. She's a huge, huge Taylor Swift fan. I honestly, at that point in my life, I, I don't know that I could have told you the name of one Taylor Swift song. That <laughs> I know them all now and I'm a huge, massive fan of hers now. Nice. Um, but I went up and she came up to me and she said, I know you. And I said, no, we, we've never met. And she said, no, no, you are, you play uh, District Attorney Stephen Olson on Law and Order 
And you did the episode where you played the guy that represented the character that did the thing and the mafia and the boom. And I was like, yeah. And then she wow. said, and then, did it, and then you did another episode where you played the same guy and you represented this other. And I said, how do you know this? And she said, well, <laughs> I, I have a really boring life. I, I, I do my job and then I go back to my hotel room and I watch reruns of Law and Order. And I said, God, that's really, that's so sad. Yeah. And I, what a sad little existence you must lead. I said, forgive me. I said, what, uh, what, what is it that you do? And she looked at me. She said, well, my name is Taylor. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a singer. I said, I know, I know who you are. I was, <laughs> I was like, I was busting her chops. Um, but it was fine. I said, and what is it you do again? And That's she so kind of looked at me like kind of happy that he doesn't know who I am. Um, <laughs> And I was just sort of delighting and, and busting her chops. And I've run into her a bunch of times since. And every time she sees me, if we're at a party or event or something, and she's like, what's your name again? Oh, that's uh, so funny. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> she's, a, she's a really good egg. Nice. She's a really good egg and just stupidly talented. I mean, oh, yeah. beyond. Yeah. So. There, there's a reason for the level of, of fame and success. She's very, very yeah. talented. <laughs> but I did have to block her number, so. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, we're coming to the end here. Would you like to do the lightning round? You ready? Let's do, do the lightning? lightning round. All right. The lightning round. Oh. All right, folks, here we go. <clears throat> this is for all the cash and prizes. Here we go. <clears throat> and we start now. Which was the more comfortable uniform, Star Trek The Next Generation or Star Trek Voyager? Exact same outfit. Exact same polyester spandex outfit. Probably, uh, probably next gen because... I remember in Voyager, I had to come up out of the water and I was in a freezing cold lake and I had to pop up over and over and over again out of this lake, frozen and covered in like mossy slime. So let's go with next gen. All right. Does Jeff Goldblum smell like rich mahogany or fresh cut grass? Both. <laughs> Both. Do, you, do you snore? I do snore, sadly. Oh. Yeah. I could shake a house, apparently. <laughs> did, uh, did Quentin Tarantino make any noises when he tried to touch your feet? Uh, yeah, but I can't, we, I, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> Tarantino style, with a, with, a, with, a, with a blowtorch. So you'd kill me first and then we have this interview. <laughs> exactly. Do you own any suits that make you look anything less than a Banff? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> no. If Lord Voldemort offered you an Alfred Molina level hug, would you accept it? Is Voldemort, is that Ray Fiennes? Yes. <laughs> yeah. He scares, me. he scares me. I've only seen a couple of those films, but he's a te he's terrifying. Um, I, I would get hugged by Alfred Molina anytime. Um, but I'd be I, I getting hugged by Lord Voldemort might uh, might freak me out a little bit. But I'd get I'd let Doc Ock hug me because I know that underneath Doc Ock is Alfred Molina, who's the nicest guy in the world. So of course, there you go. Will you tell Steven Weber to follow me back on Instagram? Sure. What is the name of the character you played in the 1989 made-for-television movie Shannon's Deal? Oh my God! Uh, give me, give me a, give me a clue. Give me a first letter. <laughs> you need this answer, Spencer, or you lose the game. I what is shit? I don't know what to tell you. That, that, that is correct. Good, Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. Is it is it in is it in IMDb? Does he have Honest, a character? Honestly, I I looked everywhere. I couldn't find it. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, oh. IMDb didn't have it. Uh, didn't have it. Wikipedia didn't have it. I was like, you know what? That's that's going to be our final question. And when he says no kidding, don't know, I'll tell him he's correct. <laughs> I, I am correct. Um, I remember. I mean, it was Jamie Sheridan, and I remember 
that was maybe one of the first five shows that I ended up getting cat. That might I be think, one of my first TV credits. I think it was, I think it's, I think it's listed as your second credit. So oh, I was no like, kid. I was like, but, boy, but there's uh, no character name. There's no character name. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I looked I'll make around one for up. it. I'll make one up and put it on IMDb. <laughs> Oh, I'll, that's call him, awesome. I'll call him Simon Tarsus. That'll freak people out. Oh, that will freak people out. Yeah. Oh my God. I am so good at lightning rounds. Oh, uh, well, um, any parting words of wisdom or final thoughts or how, how, how did you feel? How did you, how did I do? <laughs> you did great. You did. You're terrific. You are the best yet. I got to tell you, oh. you are, it was really a joy talking to you and I could, I could go for another hour. I love oh. talking to you. So let's do this another time. Absolutely. Uh, you have a, it. You have an open invitation to come on the show. Anytime. Thank you, brother. You, yeah, you crushed it. And I, I do tend to ramble. So apologies if I went on a bit. No, uh, this is wonderful. But I, I, I loved it. I love to tell these stories and especially talking to someone as nice as you. So it was really a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. Well, Spencer, you've got a whole bunch of projects going on. Let's plug as many of them as you want to. I mean, uh, the, the one that I'm most uh, excited about is, uh, called Winning Time on HBO coming in March. It's about the uh, it's about when Magic Johnson came to the Lakers in 1979 from Michigan State yeah. and changed the game of basketball. And uh, Jerry Buss bought the team and uh, and transformed uh, the NBA, transformed the league. And it's about the great rivalry between the Lakers and the Celtics and Magic's uh, and the kind of the the evolution of the Showtime Lakers. Things in this world that make me believe in God. It's sex and basketball. You know? I'm sleeping. Her loss. I'm about to buy a team. I want to build something special. A real dynasty. But I need a partner. First pick, 1979 NBA draft. Los Angeles Lakers select Irvin Magic Johnson. With me, it's gonna be exciting. Motherfucking Johnson. Style. Pizzazz. I don't know why basketball can't feel like that. To me, Dr. Buss. It's showtime! It do. It's got John C. Riley as Jerry Buss. It's got... Uh, Adrian Brody is Pat Riley, Sally Field, uh, Jason Siegel, um, just incredible, incredible cast. We have two Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights. We've got Tracy Letts um, from Ford Ferrari, who won the Pulitzer for August Osage County. And we have Stephen Adley Girgis, founding member of the Labyrinth Theatre Company in New York, with Philip Seymour Hoffman playing a big role. Um, gosh, who else? We And the, the wonderful actor playing... Uh, uh, Magic Johnson, Quincy Isaiah, newcomer, who's just incredible. It's from Adam McKay, 
um, of yeah. Talladega Nights and Ron Burgundy and Succession and his great movie up, uh, uh, Don't Look Up that's out right now. Uh, incredible thing to be a part of. I play Chick Hearn, the voice of the Lakers, the broadcaster for 50 years for the Lakers. Perfect. And uh, we just finished our first season, 10 episodes, coming at you in, uh, in March, winning time. And um, I'm, on, uh, I'm on the socials. I'm on, uh, uh, on Twitter at number one, Spencer Garrett, and on Instagram, Spencer Garrett, number one. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at the Computer Resume podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in 10 forward. subspace transmissions to computer resume podcast at gmail.com or at computer resume on facebook twitter and instagram the computer resume podcast was created and produced by mr todd a davis our logo was designed by will martin and justin bishop the opening theme was produced by justin bishop our outro music was provided with permission by drone node additional music was provided by mr todd a davis and gary horn and i'm cat davis at that dot darn dot cat with a k on Instagram, the Computer Resume Podcast is part of the Slice of Fried Gold Network. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods. And we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a Slice of Fried Gold?